You're attuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Paddling season is off and running, and organizers of the popular sport announced this month that the 72nd crossing of the 38-mile Molokai Channel is on. The Friendly Isle is where we find HPR reporter Catherine Cluett-Pactall. Good morning. Good morning from Molokai. Yes. And so uh, it's it's official. Molokai Hoi is on, and uh, people don't realize how far in advance you've got to plan this thing. There's so much planning that goes on, and not only is the Molokai Hoi on, but also this year's Navahine Okikai is back on the women's race. So that will be held on September 24th, and the Molokai Hoi will be on October 8th. And I was just really amazed to think about how many people actually descend on Molokai during this time. It's amazing. So these events bring about a thousand people to Molokai on each of those two race weekends in the fall. So it, it's a really a huge influx for Molokai's small community um, with our limited resources here. And over the past several years, of course, during the pandemic, the races have been put on hold. And over that time, there were a lot of discussions and planning that went into so many details um, of bringing this back and the decision to restart it this year, making sure that those community concerns uh, were addressed before making that big decision to bring the races back. Molokai resident Lorelei Rollins-Crovello says that organizers have been very patient and respectful of the community's concerns. They've been very keen on what Molokai's needs and wants are. We spat hands down on the top of their list to wait it out these past years, every year come back, nope, we're not ready. Okay, we respect that, had no problem, never fought it, wanting to do what's best for Molokai. You know, I know so last... The organizers have been very understanding, and one of the main concerns this year has been actually the issue of getting paddlers to Molokai now that the island only has one airline. It's, it's been a big issue. Yes, that's true. I mean, you don't have as many seats. Yeah, so one of the things that the organizers are suggesting is that paddlers actually fly into Maui and catch a ride on a boat uh, with one of the Molokai boat captains. So there's a whole uh, group that's of captains that are kind of hooing up to help. And that helps local economy as well, of course. And uh, organizers have been working with Mokulele as well um, to try and adjust the schedule and make this work so that it doesn't inconvenience, doesn't uh, cause residents to not have flights available because those flights are really essential for residents, uh, for work, for medical travel, for a lot of reasons. So they are working really hard to try and accommodate that and and not uh, really put residents in a tough spot. Yeah, and I, I was just amazed, too, about, you know, getting the canoes in place and all, and all of that. So it, it's, it's quite, a, quite a challenge. So many logistics that go into it. Um, and along with the travel, residents have also voiced some other concerns. Um, one of those in past years has been the fact that escort boats uh, in these races have been known to anchor off Molokai and just kind of fill their coolers with fish and then leave. And community members really take issue with overfishing because of Molokai's heavily subsistence lifestyle. That's really taking food away from local families. So organizers have been working really hard on education in recent years to share that message and really discourage heavy fishing while around the island. Um, Of course, it can't be prohibited, but strongly discouraged for sure. And Molokai resident and paddler Kavika Cravello also pointed out that there's really been a huge influx in different races leaving from Molokai recently. In addition to these two more iconic races that we're talking about, 
the Molokai Hoi and Navahine Okekai are sort of the original ones, but now there's so many different ones that come to Molokai, leave um, as a launching point, not having much community interaction, um, not really taking the community into consideration as much as organizers of these two races are doing. So that's kind of created some some rub with residents in recent years. And I think it's really about finding that balance between preserving these traditions of paddling and the, the culture that surrounds it, which has really become global, and also the concerns of these more present-day challenges. You know, the races never used to be as big as they are today, just in terms of the volume of paddlers coming from around the globe. So it's it brings a new set of um, challenges, for sure. Well, I think during the pandemic, it really made everybody stop and consider, you know, how much is too much, you know, and when you think about over-tourism, and then what kind of impact are you having on the on a local community? So, you know, the people here in Honolulu need to be mindful of that. It's true. It is It is a mindset. Um, just coming to Molokai is such a small island, but there's also such a rich history, and Paddling is, is really valued here as part of the culture. So one of the things that struck with me um, talking with residents is really this long history of these channel races on Molokai and how much has changed over the years. It used to be this really huge celebration. Um, the men's race began in 1952, and the first women's crossing was in 1979. Um, Molokai Hoi co-chair Ikaika Rogerson says, Molokai actually holds a special title that even many residents may not be aware of. A lot of the people that we've talked to said that of all of the canoe races that are happening, this is one that they'd like to see return because it's tradition. The first race was won by a Molokai canoe club. I don't even know that they were a canoe club. There were workers that said that they were all going to band together and they were going to enter the race, and they came out the winners. So that I thought that was really cool. I didn't even know that Molokai actually won the first Molokai Hoi. And many Molokai residents have fond memories of these early days of the races. It used to be this huge celebration down at Haleolono Harbor in West Molokai, where the races leave from. It used to be everybody getting together, the Tahitians dancing. It used to be combined with Aloha Week, and there were parades. And um, Kavika Cravello says his wife's family was uh, one of the many families involved in these long traditions of paddling. Remembering her papa and her grandmother hosting many clubs back in the days of going to Halelono, camping there, and that feeling and welcoming and excitement of the community and the paddlers. You know, that ohana va, the true ohana feeling, and she remembered that feeling, and she wanted to bring that back. So how she and other community members are working to bring that feeling back was by organizing an event called Kula Ia, and it started back in 2014. And it was really a revival of those old traditions. It was modeled after those celebrations of bringing the paddlers and the community together, and really just celebrating the culture of paddling and the Aloha spirit. And the event's purpose um, is just that, to bring them everybody together, bring face-to-face interaction and education and give an opportunity for Molokai residents to share what's so special about Molokai with all of these visitors and paddlers from around the world, share the island's values, the island's history. And similar to the races, Kula'ia has been on hold since 2019. Organizers say this year uh, they're not going to bring it back yet, 
but it is a really special tradition that has been revived and uh, the community really values it. So they do plan to bring it back in the future after these races are, are back and going strong. Yeah. You want to see the, the paddlers engage with the community. I mean, I, I, I know her, last year they heard that, oh, they everybody just flies in and they bring their stuff from Costco and they don't, you know, really uh, patronize the stores or the restaurants. And so, yeah, you want to see more interaction, meaningful and respectful. For sure. Uh, respect has, as Lorelei Rollins-Cravello mentioned, respect has been really the key in the conversation this year in, in making that decision to bring them back and moving forward, how that respectful con- interaction can continue. Um, and Rogerson talked about how... Uh, really finding ways to engage the paddlers with the community and give back while they're here. Yeah, well, we'll see how things go then uh, uh, come September, October. But thanks so much, uh, Catherine. Thanks for having me. We've been hearing from HPR's Catherine Cluett-Pactel about paddling clubs pulling off the Molokai Channel Crossing this October. Check out the story online at hawaiipublicradio.org. is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. Today, we're delving into Hawaii's entertainment history. Our state has been the backdrop to dozens of films and television shows, with all the major islands being prime destinations for filming. Off the top of your head, there's a good chance that you can name at least 10 movies with a Hawaii credit. But for today's today's quiz, we're focusing on reality TV shows. It's been more than a decade since MTV crews went to the Valley Isle in 2006, working on a couple of projects modeled after the network's successful reality shows Laguna Beach and The Hills. And the series that we're thinking about premiered in 2007. Viewers followed the lives of several young friends living in Ka'anapali. Despite successful ratings, the series received heavy criticism and a strong negative response from local residents. This eventually led to the show's cancellation. For today's Backyard Quiz, can you name this short-lived reality show on Maui? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right scores an HPR reusable tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii and its Community Giving Initiative. Learn more about how this program is supporting nonprofits focusing on affordable housing projects at nairithawaii.com. 
Think about the last time you said no to dessert. Everybody has been in a circumstance where they have something that would be better later if they could just resist some temptation. Now everybody can relate to that. When self-discipline makes sense and when you should just have the cookie. This week on Hidden Brain from NPR. Beginning this evening at 7, following Living on Earth. today with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat looks at the situation with the state data center. Reporter Stuart Yerton joins us this morning. Hi, Stuart. Hello, Catherine. So we all know this data center. It's kind of down below <laughs> in a vulnerable yep. spot. Yep. Yes, it's located um, on the big uh, building across from the state capitol across uh, Punchbowl. Um, it's called the Kalanimoku building, but again, it's that big big building dlnr is located there and this data center is in the basement and uh, a lot of people say hey it's really vulnerable it's it's um, vulnerable to flooding it's old and we need to move it and the question we really want to explore is well why have you not moved it (laughs) if it needs to move and we're so vulnerable yes because i think this came up when we had the big floods in manoa you know when the the university's library got flooded and they had computers down in the basement and they were like, oh, we need to reassess all of our critical infrastructure that's down below, you know, below sea level or down downstairs in the basement. Yeah, that's right. No, that's exactly right. This has been going on for years. Um, and again, the question is, why not move it? Now, the answer seems to be that some uh, influential legislators, uh, namely Donovan Dela Cruz, wants to move it to this uh, first responders park that he wants to build on a bunch of land in his district in in Mililani. Um, it's on agriculture land now, and uh, the problem is that would require a lot of work, a lot of money, um, at least $100 million for infrastructure alone, not including actually the buildings. And... Um, Again, it, it seemed that the governor shot that down uh, this past uh, session. And so the question is, well, why are you waiting to house this in a project that would never that might never get done? And that's pretty controversial. Well, haven't they been asking for money to move for a while? They have <laughs> and they can't get it. The only money they seem to be able to get is money that would um, place the data center in this uh, project in Mililani that, again, it doesn't even have infrastructure yet. And so they're kind of stuck. They say, we need money to move. They say, well, if you want to move, you need to be here. That seems to be the message. We haven't heard anyone say it quite that bluntly. Or, <laughs> um, yeah, we haven't gotten anybody on the record saying, yes, they told us that quite that bluntly. However, uh, that is the uh, reality of the situation. The only option, uh, the data center people have. It's, it's called the Office of Enterprise Technology Services, officially. The only option they have so far seems to be to go to this spot in Mililani where there's no infrastructure. So the that office there has taken some steps to protect some of that data, right? But not 100%. Exactly. That's right. 
Yes, that's exactly right, Catherine. So they've moved a bunch to the cloud, and the question is, why not move it all to the cloud and other uh, data centers elsewhere? Um, the answer is, well, there seems to be s some data that they really need to keep control of, such as criminal uh, justice data that they have, uh, really records, I think, for people who that might not be um, available to everybody, and uh, maybe taxpayer information, things like that. So there's about 30% of the data is not in the cloud and could be vulnerable. Well, you know, I, I think, uh, if I recall right, I think like the DOE's uh, system of computing paychecks, I think, is also down below in a basement. So, yeah, you just kind of wonder why we aren't doing more to protect these, uh, you know, critical and outdated systems. But you know, if they need to be moved, yeah, they should Yeah, that's right. It's not... No, that's exactly right. It, it, from what I understand, it's not just the data center at um, on Punchbowl that uh, needs to be consolidated and protected. There are other there are other sources of information. Again, the idea is to move it all somewhere secured, and uh, the only spot that they seem to be getting money for, at least to have money available from the legislature for, is this one spot that the Ways and Means Chairman uh, wants. Uh, now, we spoke to people at the Office of Enterprise Technology Services, and they said, yeah, we, there are many places we could go. We talked to real estate professionals, um, and they said, yeah, there are other places for sure. The, the, the site in Mililani could make sense because it is next to a uh, tech park, so they, the infrastructure is nearby and could be extended. But there are places already with existing infrastructure, such as in uh, Kapolei. Uh, where the state has a pretty big presence with a state office building and courthouse, and there's available land uh, near that. So it's not clear why exactly um, they won't go somewhere else. The implication seems to be an influential senator wants it in his district, but we're stuck now with a bunch of vulnerable data, we are told, highly vulnerable to problems, and we could lose it all, and no one really is doing anything about it. Well, let's hope that doesn't happen and we don't have a fl have flooded conditions over there. But thanks so much, Stuart. Thank you, Catherine. And that was reporter Stuart Yurton with today's Reality Check. Uh, read his full story at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to an equitable and thriving Hawaii, supporting initiatives such as affordable housing, fresh water, and the healthy development of young children. HawaiiCommunityFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. When the Russian military knocked out the power in Ukraine, this school had a solar backup system. Our school was able to function nonstop. There were in-person classes during winter, during blackouts. Looking to a future with more solar in Ukraine, that's next time on The World. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for HPR comes from Waikoloa Beach Resort on the island of Hawaii, offering Kama'aina hospitality with a range of options for dining, shopping, and activities. More about rediscovering the Kohala Coast at WaikoloaBeachResort.com. 
Sophia Kaava Aviao graduated with honors from Windward Community College last month. Her commencement speech recounted her educational journey that began while incarcerated. Kaava's uh, Aviao's ability to honestly speak about the possibility of education, community support, and personal resilience went viral over social media. Thousands listened. For a majority of my life, I was in and out of prison. Domestic violence, crime, and trauma had me on a total path of destruction. Four years ago, I was sitting in a prison cell filled with feelings of guilt and shame. I couldn't look at myself, I couldn't care for my kids, and their cries would haunt me day in and day out. I was feeling as a mom, and I failed my mother who had to carry them through my prison, through prison and my addiction. Getting arrested was the best thing that happened to me. It gave me time to reflect and regain my self-esteem. Through prison, Winnery Community College offered college courses. I couldn't see myself in college. I thought I wasn't good enough. However, I took a chance and studied hard and passed all the courses that were offered. I then received my Psychosocial Developmental Studies Certificate. And this is where I felt inspired to go back to school and continue my education. As soon as I came out of prison, I enrolled at WCC. I wanted to do something with my life, and yet I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. For every course that I took, I gained personal knowledge and self-awareness. I also gained tools to help me grow into the person my kids can look up to. Today, I'm graduating with honors, and I will continue to pursue my degree in social work because of my personal experiences and because of my growth in myself and in my education. I was accepted into the BSW program at UH Manoa. My goal, my goal is to go as far as getting my MSW. I want to help women who have been where I've been because I know that the struggle is real. And I believe that education helped me regain my life in ways I cannot explain. I would like to thank everyone here at Wimmer Community College, my professors, and to all my classmates. I want to thank Pops and the Trio program for never leaving me behind and for always supporting me through all my challenges that gave me anxiety. I, was, I also want to thank every single professor I had the privilege of working with. You helped me and supported me even when my homework was overdue. You saw something in me that I couldn't see. I can look at myself today. I can care for my kids. I'm not a failing mom, and I'm making it up to my mother. I'll be someone for my kids and my mom to depend on. Thank you again, and congratulations to all of 2023 graduates. A full-time working mother and student, Kaava Aviao, is now working toward her bachelor's degree in social work from the University of Hawaii. She talked with the conversation, Stephanie Hahn, about her future plans. So my education, educational journey began while I was incarcerated at the Women's Community Correctional Center. And they were offering a grant through Pu'u Honua with WCC. And we were allowed to sign up and take courses. So I started taking courses. And I believe I, I was there for like four semesters. And I ended up getting a psychosocial developmental studies certificate. And whatever courses they had to offer, I just took it. I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do at that time, but I just knew that education is important. Was there anything um, in particular that struck you during that time so that you wanted to continue? The professors that we had that were teaching us that came into the prison, 
being that we're in prison and um, the setting is it's just different so they were really welcoming and um, helpful and they just very motivational you exited and you went on to Windward Community College. Yes. Can you tell me about this? And are you a first-generation college goer? Yes, I am. I got out and I enrolled into the, the semester that was coming up. They have a trail program there. And I signed up and they just helped, helped me navigate through everything and enroll me in classes. And at that time, I was... I wasn't really sure, so I, got, I signed up for my liberals. And in the process of me going to school, I decided that I wanted to go into social work. What is the TRIO program? There, there might be people who don't know about the this. The TRIO program is a program for first-generational college students, low-income, and they just help you. You can go in there. There's tutors. They feed you. You know, you can go over there, study. And um, there's a computer lab, and there's always people available to help you in whatever it is. So how did you decide that you wanted to go into social work? Well, social work has always been my passion because I kind of grew up in the system. So social work is something that I feel is vital. And being with my past, I feel like I have the lived experience that... For me, growing up in the system, I know if I had people with the lived experience, then I would be able to relate to them more. But I would have people with no experience who were social workers at that time with college degrees. And for me, it was hard for me to connect with them. So what was the greatest challenge that you found moving into this stage of your educational journey when you came out and you enrolled. It is not easy to go back to enroll in college as an adult. You mentioned you have children. It's a challenge. So my greatest challenge was being able to balance my life as a mom, working full-time and going to college full-time. So just being able to... um, adapt and find the right balance to get through my courses. The trail program was a big part in helping me when I could find the time to go there if there was something that I that I needed, like something more that I needed that I couldn't do on my own. It was just comforting that I knew that, okay, I can go there. Right. And tell me about some of the academics that really struck you, stayed with you, some of the lessons any favorite classes you want to talk about? I took like four different psychology courses while I was in prison, and I really, I really liked those courses. What were some of the, you know, ideas that you understood that maybe gave you like this aha moment? I think it was the cognitive behavior theories that oh, it was like an aha moment. My social work class that I just took was probably the the hardest and the last project that we had to do the final paper it was really hard and I chose homelessness so I had to write about homelessness and yeah it was challenging but it was fun what is the thing that you discovered about yourself on this journey 
Well, I was able to discover that that no matter how, how hard it gets, my determination helped me get through it. Especially this last semester, I was in six courses and working full time. But I was able to get through it. And every course that I took, after I got my grades, I was like, yes, I can do it. And it just motivated me more to keep doing it. And I was able to graduate with honors, which was really great. That's great. Um, You talked about being a role model, maybe for your kids. Your video went viral. I'm sure you're a role model for many people beyond your family. Do you have any thoughts about this? Or so I work closely with a lot of the women that we have transitioning from prison, and I just think that education is powerful, and that is something that we lack here in Hawaii growing up due to choices that we make. It's just inspiring to see me being an inspiration and them wanting to follow my path. Yeah. What kind of student were you when you were younger? Like a little kid or in high school? Did you like school? Because now you seem very focused on school. I didn't really like going to school. I just thought I was grown and did whatever I wanted. It's never too late. It's never too late to go back to school. Whatever it is that you set your dreams on, you can accomplish. If you think about the women that are getting kind of inspired by you, what can we do to support them? What do they need? I would say resources. Okay. Okay. I, I think resources is a major part in that. But, I mean, I know we have a lot of resources. We just have to, you know, look into it. But, yeah, I think resources and support. What kind of support can somebody give? Um, What did you you need, you know, while you were struggling and moving through it? I think it was just the support in guiding me through the steps that I needed to take once I got out that really helped me. What is your mission now? Now my mission is to complete my bachelor's in social work at Manoa and go as far as getting my MSW. And I really want to work with the youth. I, I want to work with the women also, but I want to work with the troubled youth. Because I feel like as youth, there's more of a chance that you can help save them. To whereas us women, by the time we get to women's prison, Like, you got to save yourself, really. The rehabilitation programs we have in there, it's great that they're offering us college courses now, but they don't have rehabilitation programs. They have mandatory drug treatment programs that you need to take in order to get out. But as in rehabilitation, I just feel like the youth is where we can help save the youth more. Anything else that you'd like to say? So I would like to shout out to the TRIO program at WCC. They're awesome. And also the Pua Foundation. They're also awesome. And they've helped me through this journey. I'm just super excited to continue this journey. I'm blessed to be on it. And and I just can't wait to see where it goes from here. Thank you so much. You're welcome. That was Sophia Ka'ava Avial talking to HBR Stephanie Hahn.
Kaava Aviao is a full-time working mother, student, and house mother for the Pua Foundation, where she has found herself encouraging women to change their lives through formal education. She believes that resources offered by the Pua Foundation and the TRIO program can make a difference. Her journey stands as a testament to the transformational power of education. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Dr. Rajiv Party, author of Dying to Wake Up. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about my near-death experience under the book Dying to Wake Up. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Water has powered Kauai in the past. Will it power its future? The Kauai Island Utility Cooperative is pursuing a multi-year lease for a new hydropower plant on the Waimea River, which would divert a rolling average of 11 million gallons of water a day. But community members pushed back, saying DLNR should require KIUC to complete a full environmental impact statement to investigate the project. The hydrologist Matt Rosner hopes KIUC completes an environmental impact statement. A lot of times we've used the terms renewable and green energy interchangeably. That's not always true. There are some hydropower projects out there that actually have pretty significant environmental impacts. The plantations diverted millions of gallons of water out of natural stream beds for irrigation and power, which continued long after the sugar era ended. They took away the water without anybody having any say about it. It really alienated a lot of Hawaiians from their land, all the plantations. Support energy and climate change coverage on HPR. Donate at hawaiipublicradio.org. Now it's time for the answer to the Backyard Quiz. Earlier we asked you to name the MTV show that was filmed in Kaanapali in 2006 and premiered in early 2007. During its run, the show faced strong criticism for its editing, which led many to believe the reality show was scripted. It also received backlash from local residents because of its perceived lack of racial and cultural diversity and its adult content. Many residents also felt these factors created misconceptions of Maui and of Hawaii in general. Uh, Nevertheless, the show was a hit with viewers, even though the backlash was very strong. At the time of its airing, there were online petitions against it. And according to State Film Commissioner Donnie Dawson, public reaction was stronger than the response to any other Hawaii production. Ultimately, this led to the show's cancellation. Maybe you were one of the millions worldwide who watched Maui Fever, which was the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. And congrats to our winner, Keith from Oahu. You got it right. Uh, if you have an idea for a quiz, uh, share it with us. Write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. The 10th season of the History Channel reality show Alone began airing this month. Among the participants this year is Maui resident Luke Olson. The show takes 10 outdoor survival experts from around the U.S. and Canada, then drops them in several areas around a single location in the deep wilderness to see how long they can survive. Here's the show's opening. I'm going to do this, man. I'm going to do this. 
I'm gonna fight this thing out to the last breath. Okay. Game on. I got him! In Alone's most remote location yet. Yeah! Ten participants set out to survive at all costs. We're both still alive. Battling extreme isolation. There is no camera crews. You are really alone. They don't eat at you. There you go. God, ma. That's a battle. Nobody ever comes out the same. Oh, man. It'd be impossible to. And fierce predators. Some big bear. It's right outside my shelter. Predators like that, damn sure gonna kill you. Please don't rip my face off. You bit the hell out of me. They'll endure merciless winds. Been over 60 hours, and it has not let up. I can hear the trees falling down around me. And bitter cold. This whole place has turned into a frozen hill. Last one standing. It's a moose. Ow. <laughs> no. No. Winds. In the past, Alone is filmed in remote places like Vancouver Island, Patagonia in Argentina, and Mongolia. This year, they're around Reindeer Lake in northern Saskatchewan, Canada. Each person is allowed to bring 10 items that will help them survive the elements and collect food. They also have to be wary of predators like bears and wolves. In addition, they have to film themselves the entire time, and they do it all in complete isolation. The last person standing wins $500,000. Luke Olson is the first person from Hawaii to be on the show. The conversation with Russell Subiano got the chance to talk to him this morning about the whole experience. I think one of the biggest questions out there about participants on a loan is what drives them to want to test their survival skills in the wilderness so far away from civilization to live amongst predators and endure bone-chilling temperatures in such isolation. And I think you had an advantage of sorts. I know your parents are the authors of the best-selling book, Outdoor Survival Skills. And from what I hear, they're pretty big legends in the outdoor community. Can you talk about why you wanted to participate? So why I chose this show in particular is because it's the no gimmicks, real deal survival challenge, the only one that's really out there. I wouldn't even consider doing another show. Definitely the top of that genre. And so, yeah, when the opportunity arose, it was a no-brainer for me. I love being out in the wilderness, and have it. it's been a little while since I spent that much time and dedication to a project, so I was itching for it, actually. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, of course, the $500,000 is quite the motivation, and everything on its own is cool that it's a game. I added a new twist that I've never done before. Yeah, it was all really exciting. As a fan of the show, I know that at the outset of the season, when, when participants are first being dropped off at, at their individual sites, I know that the biggest debate among participants is, do you build a shelter first or do you start gathering food first? What was your strategy? Oh, I was 100% focused on food. Just from you know the weather that we'd observed at base camp and the forecast that we were able to get i knew we got at least a couple days before weather set in and in general i'm not really that worried about long-term shelter right away that'll come over time but what needs to happen right away is keeping your calorie count up and your belly biome healthy and active and starving even for a day can really just impact that 
yeah, yeah, you have to survive off the land, whether it's from fish in the lake or from animals that live on land or any of the berries or, or other plants that are around. That's a pretty big deal. How do you know what is edible, what is not edible? Is that something that you just know from experience or is that part of the orientation for the show? Well, a little bit of both, actually. It was definitely a brand new environment for me, but a lot of the principles about wild edibles and everything cross a lot of different bioregions. So definitely there was some pre-training at base camp before we all launched and everything. And I think they touched on that a little bit in the the pre-show. I don't know if you're able to watch that. Yeah, and, and that, that, yeah, sorry, a little bit of both actually. That was the first time I think that they had shared that information with viewers that they actually take you out into the field and, and kind of show you what's specific to that area. Just in my head, I think that would be, you know, one of the biggest issues if I was ever in a similar situation. I'd have no idea what I could or couldn't eat. When you're out in the wilderness, I know that fear can be both a motivator or it can be debilitating. Out of all the potential dangers, large predators, weather, lack of food, injury, what was the scariest thing for you? Definitely the thing I was most cautious and aware of is not getting hurt. Right? One slip or just small mistake can mean having to leave, right? And so the rest of it, you know, is a little bit out of your control, but as far as what resources you land on and everything, but that one is one that you definitely need to stay focused on and, and held a lot of my attention for sure. There was one season where one of the participants suffered a broken leg on the first day. And I remember just being so bummed out for that dude. What a terrible thing to happen right off the bat. So I, I imagine injury is, is in the back of everyone's head as well. And I know that every participant is allowed to bring 10 items to help them survive. I think there are probably about six or seven core things that just about everybody brings, things like a sleeping bag, bow and arrows, a cooking pot. But everyone tends to bring at least one thing that makes them a little bit different. For you, I thought it was the block of salt. I don't remember anyone putting that on the list in the past. What was the reason behind that decision? Yeah, that was one of my more important items. I took that for electrolytes and for flavoring the food. big part of your mental health out there is enjoying the food you're able to chase and eat. And the more you can enjoy that, the better your mental health is. So that was a big part of it. And the electrolytes, I feel like, through my past experience working in the desert a lot, I've been dehydrated and electrolyte deficient, and I see how that has affected my decision-making and found the remedy for that, which is CM and a few other electrolytes that you need. So that was a really specific block of salt that I brought with a lot of intention and got really happy that I did. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about the electrolyte part of it. I knew that if you were to score you know, some fish or, or some big game, that salting it would help preserve it for the long run. But the electrolyte part of it, I, that hadn't occurred to me. That's, that's pretty interesting. All 10 participants were dropped into different areas around Reindeer Lake in northern Saskatchewan, Canada. For context, it's about 400 miles away from Saskatoon, which is Saskatchewan's largest city. It's about 700 miles away from the North Dakota border. It's an environment that is very different from the deserts of southern Idaho where you were raised and Maui where you live now. How does living in Hawaii give you unique skills and also present you with unique challenges when trying to survive in the Canadian wilderness? 
doing all my casting videos and preparing to go on this journey living in Hawaii gave me amazing opportunities to experiment with new resources, new materials, new environment, new food sources, and really just get the creative juices flowing. I've done trips in Montana, Idaho, Washington, Oregon, California, Arizona, Utah. So I've experienced a lot of different areas, but nothing tropical like Hawaii. So that really just got the creative juices flowing and my mind is thinking in a different way. So when I went to that very different atmosphere and environment in Canada, I was already really critically thinking about all of my items, doing a lot of research. Yeah, just really like got that in motion for me. Were there any tactics or strategies that you borrowed from past participants? Oh yeah, I mean, I think everybody that goes out now and on any subsequent seasons is a huge student of the show. There's definitely gameplay involved beyond surviving, you know? It's got its own strategies and stuff, so to study that and see what's successful is very useful for sure. Specifics, you know, like definitely the block assault was part of that and watching how many participants did get dehydrated and watching their decision-making skills taper down was a big influencer on why to bring that salt. I think in the last handful of seasons, participants have been referencing past winners or, or past participants, which I, I think it kind of ties everybody together and, and kind of brings them into this cool club of alone participants. I Definitely. Think- you know, it's the uh, basically the Olympics of survival challenges. And so we look to past winners and past contestants, successes and failures as definite part of our training for sure i think the biggest thing that separates alone from similar shows like survivor and naked and afraid is the fact that all the participants are completely alone there's no interaction with any other participants you're completely dependent on yourself and your abilities to make it how did that isolation impact you it was amazing like we never get the opportunity to really experience that in our modern lives right Even when we try, it's really difficult to have true alone time like that. So I was absolutely soaking it in. You know, there are a few times with medical checks and things like that where the staff comes out and back in. And and I knew this would be a thing just from my previous work with wilderness rehab programs and everything that when staff come in and then leave again, that's always like an emotionally struggling time for the participants in these programs because there's suddenly a connection with the outside world and remembering all the comforts and everything that come with that. And so, you know, those were different little struggle points when med checks and things like that would have to happen. But for the most part, I thoroughly enjoyed the alone time. (laughs) Do you think living in such a community-oriented place like Hawaii made the isolation harder on you? Um, No, I didn't really feel that. My wife has a quote when I applied to go on alone. She says, what are you thinking? Like being alone is like being with 10 people. That's your definition of being alone. Because <laughs> we always have such big community around. And, uh, you know, I definitely was curious if that was going to come into play for me out there. But, you know, the loneliness didn't really, didn't really factor in for me. I feel like I would have a similar experience if I were to try something like this. I think I would probably embrace the isolation. Oh, yeah. I value the self-reflection time and the insight that trial by nature brings. Super valuable for the self and mental health, for sure. Episode 3 airs tonight. We'll be able to see how everyone is faring after the first couple of weeks alone in the Canadian wilderness. 
like you said earlier, the winner takes home $500,000, but we'll have to wait to the finale to see who the last man or woman is standing. When you signed up for the show, what were you hoping to do with the money? So there's this hot springs property in Idaho where I am actually currently. And yeah, the plan is to develop that property into a community center and healing center. Yeah. Luke, is there anything else that you want to share with our listeners? Can you tell them how to tune in to watch alone? Tune in every Thursday night, nine, eight central on the history channel. Catch all the action coming up. Be sure and bring some snacks. See how we fare in the Canadian wilderness. Right on. Thanks so much for your time, Luke. Yeah, of course, man. And that was Maui's Luke Olson talking with HBR's Russell Subiano about his experience on the History Channel reality show Alone. Episode 3 of Alone Season 10 airs tonight. We will have a link to more information on the conversation page of our website later today. Well, we're out of time. Up tomorrow, we plan a call-in show about active shooter drills now that the governor has signed a bill making them mandatory. Record your comments or questions. Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Record something before the show or call in live. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can find the conversation podcast on Spotify or Apple or anywhere else you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. 